Well, good morning, friends. Southminster friends and John Knox friends, as well as we have a number of folks who are viewing this online as well. And so my name is Jimmy. I'm a pastor at John Knox and, and delighted uh, for us all to be together here this morning. What a what a real treat. It's been a treat to get together with Ken from time to time. And so now to get together uh, with uh, the Southminster congregation as well. Uh, what a privilege. And also a little shout out to Marty Hawkins as well, who helped out with my installation service about a year or so ago. There's a popular bit of wisdom. And maybe you've heard this bit of wisdom before. Uh, the idea of if you give a man a fish, you heard this right, you have fed him for a day. If you teach that man to fish, you have fed him for a lifetime. If you do a web search of additional things, if you give a man a boat, you've lost him on the weekends, all that sort of thing. So there's a whole, there's a whole list of them uh, that come that follow that same line of wisdom. But our text today is of a different sort. Our text today is one that says if you give a fish a man, right? if you give a fish a man, turns out to be what many of us remember about the book of Jonah itself. Also what we remember about a 1970s blockbuster film. But if you grew up going to Sunday school, you have some exposure to this biblical text, right? You know the characters, you know there's Jonah and of course Nineveh. Uh, you've heard of the fish, uh, of course, as part of that. It's a familiar story. And so many of us know this, we know it from uh, flannel boards and, and whatever. Uh, maybe even saw the VeggieTales movie. But if that's you, let me encourage you with the following quote. Even in the familiar, there can be surprise and wonder. Even in the familiar, there can be surprise and wonder. But if it, that's not you, if you this morning just heard this text for the first time, am I going in and out? It feels like I'm going in and out. All the good parts are being missed. I'll try to stand in one place. But if you have not heard this story this morning, that's okay. You come to this text for the first time, the story of Jonah is one that's not familiar to you, uh, and you hear this and you go, what on earth is that story? That's okay. There's plenty to be mined here uh, in this story. In fact, the story is more than just a person who ends up in the digestive tract of a fish. And what we learn here is there's another, there I go again. We learn of another figure, Steve Bubbles on the way. Keep going, all right. Pay no attention to the man back there with the other microphone. But what we learn about this third figure, another figure that looms large in the text, has real implications for you and me in this day and this age. Back in 1993, does anybody remember 1993? Who remembers 1993? Do you want to do a little date sequence here? I graduated from high school in 1993. Oh, some are like, wow, he's old. Some are like, what? <laughs> But back in 1993, you might remember, if you remember back then, there was a Nike commercial spot that featured Phoenix Suns power forward Charles Barkley. And the campaign has Barkley uh, stating that he is not a role model. He says, I am not a role model. And he goes on to conclude, just because I dunk a basketball doesn't mean that I should raise your kids. All right, Just because I dunk a basketball doesn't mean I should raise your kids. And of course, this spot drew lots of conversation in society at the time. You tune into sports radio uh, during that age, people would call in and talk about this, asking that cultural question about maybe, maybe Nike has it right or maybe they have it wrong. Someone with such a great spotlight on them, shouldn't they be a role model of some sort? They're on television, they're in commercials. Uh, don't they represent something bigger than just the average Joe? And we might imagine at this point that a prophet like Jonah, uh, because of their particular platform or his platform, uh, that he would be a role model, but he isn't. And this first chapter shows us that from the beginning. He's introduced to us as Jonah, the son of Amittai. And Amittai here is related to a Hebrew word for faithful. And what happens here is clearly Jonah is anything but. That he's not faithful at all. 
Our author, in fact, is having fun with us right from the very beginning of our text, kind of winking at us as we read this, uh, saying to us that the son of faithfulness isn't faithful and this prophet refuses to bring God's message. And those are things that you would not expect. The book, of course, isn't the only time that we encounter this Jonah figure. We'll actually see him mentioned just very briefly in 2 Kings chapter 14, where he's related to a figure known as Jeroboam II, who is king of Israel. Now, before you get too excited about that, that's not saying too much about you, right? Jeroboam, a uh, big claim to fame that we read in that chapter later on is that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that's who Jonah's working with here. Jonah's said to have prophesied that at the time the borders would be secured for Israel, exactly what Jeroboam would have wanted to hear. But then it goes on in Amos chapter 6 to note that those borders being secure was shortly lived. But the Jonah we encounter here in our text seems something other than we might imagine a prophet would be about. Instead of going to Nineveh, as we hear in verse 2, he attempts to flee the presence of God in verse 3. And in case there is any confusion here, verse 3 actually repeats that same fleeing the presence of God. And if there was even more confusion there, it says later in verse 10 that the entire crew knew that Jonah was fleeing the presence of God. So Jonah's clearly like telling people, I'm fleeing the presence of God. My name's Jonah. Hi, I'm Jonah. I'm fleeing the presence of God. Well, come on board, Jonah. We've got a place for you. Tim Keller, of course, will appropriately identify Jonah here as the prodigal prophet because of this. He's on the run. Also, we see that when the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea in verse 4, raising the great storm that threatens the crew and the ship, Jonah, being of great mercy and compassion, right, reaches out and says, how can I help? That's not what he does at all. Instead, he falls asleep in the hold. That's what we see in verse 5. He doesn't care. He's fleeing the presence of God and anything that comes along with it. And then we see when it finally comes down to it, the, that action must finally be taken. We must do something because we're not going to beat this storm. Does the prophet repent? No. Does the prophet call for the boat to be turned around so they can get back on mission? No. He doesn't do any of that. He tells the crew to throw him into the raging sea in verse 12, which is nothing short of a death sentence. Not to mention that this course would traumatize the crew. Right? If to throw an innocent man in the sea and then watch them flail to their death, that would trauma traumatize them. And in addition, it would allow him to die so that he could fully not do what God had asked him to do. If I die, I can't go to Nineveh. There's Jonah the prophet. There's your role model. Not a role model. So Jonah doesn't heed the word of the God. He doesn't concern himself with the plight of the crew. And the only solution he puts forward is one that would seem to throw the ultimate obstacle in the way of God's plan. And we named a book after this guy. The prophet who knows the Lord would rather die. Would rather die. That's going to come up later in Jonah as well. How different is that the picture of the sailors? These outsiders. These people that have no business knowing the instruction of the Lord. These people that you would never predict would ever be the ones that would set a pattern or be a role model. But yet our author here sets them up to be people who seem to be much more conscientious, much more faithful, certainly much more religious than the prophet who sits on the ship with them. They're not called to a prophetic office like Jonah, yet when confronted with God's manifested power and judgment in the storm, they pray to their own gods but they're praying. They take seemingly appropriate action, 
to save the lives of one another by casting things into the sea. They're trying to save the lives of the crew and even Jonah himself. And here they are, they even inviting Jonah to appeal to his own God. They reach out to him, perhaps, perhaps their gods are not going to get the job done. So perhaps you have one that you can appeal to. And here they are inviting him to this place of faithfulness. And when those efforts are exhausted, before casting Jonah in the sea, what do they do? They pray again. They offer a prayer. And then finally, after he is cast in the sea and the storm goes away, we see that they once more enter into specific prayer to the Lord and they make vows. This is an upside down, inside out story right from the beginning. And we've heard it so many times in Sunday school. And we've heard the story told to us in film. In fact, I actually saw there's an Abbott and Costello act that's actually based off of this, this story that is probably as frustrating to watch as it is to listen to it. So either way you find it, that's six minutes that you're going to lose. But here we have pagan sailors are godly. The prophet wants to flee the presence of God. And this is all done by design. This author wants us to see all this confusion, this upside down, this backwards kind of thing, so that we could consider the third figure that looms large, not in the background, but in the foreground of this text. And it's not the fish. The big figure is not the fish. Instead, what we have is a story about God. A story about a God who is faithful even to the unfaithful and faithful to even the untrained. You see, earlier in, in the history of Israel, particularly back at the time of Moses, that God reveals God's self to the people of Israel, specifically to Moses at a point in Exodus chapter 34. And you've heard this text before, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding to love and faithfulness. That's how God describes God. That's what God says God is up to, to Moses, when Moses wants to understand who is this that is calling me? Who is this that is going to rescue God's people? And of course, this verse is not only popular with Moses and the ancients, it's one that shows up in the Bible. In fact, it's the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible, all right? So if you think about verses that are quoted in the Bible by the Bible, Exodus 34 is that one. And what happens here is that unlike the prophet who refuses to prophesy or the Hebrew who refuses to remain in the presence of the Lord and the son of faithfulness who isn't faithful, God is faithful to God's revealed character and identity, hearing and answering prayers of these outsiders as they cast lots. God points it to Jonah. Sparing the lives of this crew, sparing the life of this prophet who is a runaway, and spares that prophet's life in a very creative way by producing a huge fish to swallow him. Even the fish is a gift from God. The text tells us the fish was given by God. And we'll learn in chapter 4 that it is exactly this revealed character of God from Exodus chapter 34 that leads Jonah to run away in the first place. It's exactly that way that God has shown God's self and if that doesn't sound right to you, you're saying, no, 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 no. Come on, Jimmy, what? That doesn't sound right. Why would you run away from something so pleasant and nice, so great? Why would you run away from that God? How does that make any sense? So if you don't believe me, if you think I'm crazy, listen to Jonah here. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, 
a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. There's Jonah, quoting Exodus 34. The flannel board story I heard held Jonah out to be disobedient at the most. Held out that he was just doing something wrong here and that he would correct his actions in the future. But instead what we find is someone whose heart is set against the people of Nineveh. These are his enemies and a prophet who would rather live an angry and bitter life. And if he can't do that, then he'd rather have no life at all. The Bible Project appropriately summarizes the book in this way. It's the subversive story of a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. And that's an apt description of Jonah. God loves his enemies. God loves his enemies. That last part is worth holding on to. God loves his enemies. We hear in scripture that this identity of this character of God, how God takes action, is probably one of the most disruptive ones for our lives. So you consider a God who shows care and compassion and love to enemies, we might say, come on, that can't be true. God can't possibly act that way. And then we realize as we read through Romans that God does exactly that on our own behalf. As we come to Romans chapter 5, we see that we who are sinners, God's love is demonstrated to us even at that moment. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. We read on in Romans chapter 5 that those who once were enemies are now reconciled to God. And so as we see this picture, this beautiful picture of a God who loves God's own enemies, people who are estranged and distant, far away, we realize that we can't be pointing figures to other places. We can't say Nineveh over there is the enemy. We recognize that we're all in bad shape as enemies, but in truth of the good news, we're in good shape because of who God is and how God has revealed God's self. Jesus himself, remember when he was being tortured and ultimately killed, when he's been unjustly tried and all the elements that go into that final weekend as we look at Good Friday and, and what Christ would endure, what does he say in the midst of all his enemies? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Clearly within the character of who God is and the God who would send a prophet to Nineveh and who would ultimately relent. Of course, that has implications for you and me today. So we think about our lives and the time and period we live in today, we do a great job of polarizing ourselves and saying those folks over there are no good. They've got it all wrong. And I'm going to do everything I can to oppose them and stand against them. They are, in effect, my enemies. I was driving this uh, past weekend, and I, I passed by a, a piece of property where someone had a sign out in front of their property, and it had the name of the president on it, and it said, Biden is the devil. I have studied the Bible for many years, and I can assure you that Biden is not the devil. But that represents that polarizing language. And the process that we put ourselves, right calling left evil, left calling right evil, and further dividing ourselves, and seeing each other at opposite ends, and folks that we cannot have a friendship or extend a kindness to. How out far, outside the character of God, how far we've come to get to that place. When we use those words, when we use that language, we become like Jonah. And we're running away from the presence of the Lord. But how different it looks for us if we were to embrace the character of God in that moment. How different my prayer life looks when I can pray for my neighbor out of great love. When I can pray for those in distant lands who I might label as my enemy. As I can pray for Russians and Ukrainians. 
as I'm praying for people around the world and pray that God's will and God's love would be found in those places that God would bring peace to all the lands of the world, bring peace to my neighborhood and the people that I've labeled and I've separated myself from. How different that looks for us. There's a new book by Andy Stanley that's come out recently and it talks about this divide that exists in our country. And I would encourage you, if you have a chance, to pick that up and, and read that just to see. He colors uh, a picture of, actually quite a distressing picture of what the world, our nation looks like within this separation, this polarization that we live in. Um, and how difficult it makes us when we think about our call of witness and gospel proclamation in this world. There's a phrase that I draw back, and I draw back to this in conclusion here. It's a phrase from the reformers. It's a Latin phrase. Uh, that we still use to this day, quorum Deo, which means in the presence of God. It's a popular reference in Christian circles, particularly, like I said, within the, the, the reform circles. It's the idea of living in the presence of God, and according to the late R.C. Sproul, who defined it this way, he says, it's to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. That God is present indeed uh, to shape our lives, but that presence is not to be fled from. Rather, it's a presence to be embraced and to be recognized, to see that truly we are in the presence of God. And that it offers us hope and offers us assurance amidst the great challenges of life. It becomes a contextual framework for us to pray towards that others might experience and know God's presence in a very real way, a tangible way, because it comes with great benefit. It comes with great transformation. It invites us to be present to one another, just as God is present to us. To be present in the moment, to be present with each other as an act of kindness, an act of love, and an act of friendship. And these are all words that be characteristic of who God is. And if you think it's crazy that we're in the presence of God, you say, how can that happen amidst all the suffering and struggle that I see, amidst the difficulty of my life, how could I truly be in the presence of God. Well, what did the psalmist say? Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Friends, we are in the presence of God. May we never squander the mercy that God has shown to us or hinder the good news from going out to all the world. Maybe so in our generation today and every day. Amen. Friends, let us pray together.